<laughs> when we showed it to the studio, I don't think there was a reaction. <laughs> they just sort of left. Good evening and welcome to this third edition of Midnight Video with your host me Phil Walsh and me Jim Hall. Tonight we head back to the 80s when a diminutive alien visitor found himself trapped on Earth and hounded by the authorities, leading to one of the most notorious box office flops in history. We ask, were audiences absolutely right to hate Howard the Duck? An invention that'll make everyone happy? Amanda Plummer returns home to Arizona and can't wait to see what mysterious device her old friend Keith Gordon has built in his back room. We tune in to Mark Romanek's Static. And finally, a not-so-diminutive alien threatens chaos and destruction for the peaceful inhabitants of Metropolis, known centuries ago as planet Earth. Richard Keel and a bevy of his James Bond co-stars provide a big bowl of spaghetti sci-fi in one of Italy's many answers to Star Wars, 1979's The Humanoid. So Jim, are you excited about tonight? Tonight, yes, uh, we're recording the show now, obviously. Um, but yes, we're off tonight to see Shogun Assassin at uh, where was at it? The Rio in Dalston. Yeah, um, um, courtesy of Cigarette Burns. Yeah, who we mentioned briefly last time. Um, we were off then to watch Scream Blackula Scream, which ultimately wasn't as much fun as the Black Gestapo, I've got to say. No, unfortunately not. No. But you know, I great did. that it got an airing. Yeah, I enjoyed it regardless. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, Cigarette Burns, who basically do screenings of very similar films to the sort of stuff we're covering here so yeah they cover um, all sorts of exploitation genre movies little hidden gems and they show them at uh, Mucky Pup the in Mucky Islington, Pup in Islington yes. and at the Rio in Dawson obviously differing sizes screens yes. <laughs> but no well worth checking out if you're in London um, and tonight we're going to see Shogun Assassin which have you seen before yeah I have I don't have enough superlatives for that oh, film really? I absolutely love it yeah it's you're, great you're raising the stakes there no, <laughs> I, I've heard lots of good stuff and the trailer looks fantastic But because uh, this is basically it's a series of Chop Socky movies that they've kind of all yeah the series together. was Lone Lone Wolf and Cub or right. the Baby Cart series and some American guys got hold of these and they pushed the first it might be two it could be three and edited them heavily uh, overdubbed it with English um, actors um, American actors sorry and then I think they swapped the soundtracks around so it's got this sort of eerie sort of electronic score. And um, yeah, it's, they created like a really amazing cult piece of cinema. Yeah, no, I'm very much looking forward to that. It does start very late though. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so, well, it starts at 11.30, but... I, That's I like when you get to my age, <laughs> when you don't live in the area. Oh. But, um, and yeah, you've uh, you've seen off your family for the next few days. Yeah, I've got, I've got a week of freedom, so I'm catching up on watching loads of films and staying up to stupid hours because I want to as opposed to my little boy's crying his head off yeah your charming excellent toddler <laughs> yeah. who, uh, no you very kindly made dinner for me after the last podcast uh, it was nice to see little Zeb again but yeah he did end up throwing a wooden car into my nuts which <laughs> is probably something a lot of listeners would like to do <laughs> join the queue yeah 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 <laughs> but anyway talking of things that are about as enjoyable as having a wooden car thrown at your nuts shall we uh, cover our first film tonight Howard the Duck Howard the Duck Hickory dickory duck, he ain't about to be blunt Too groovy for craving, too precious for panty But he's a funky little fella 
Let the female creature go. Every duck's got his limit, and you scum have pushed me over the line. Jimmy, do you like see what I see? A talking duck? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. I've been doing too much toot. So, Howard the Duck. Once the dust had settled on Star Wars, George Lucas produced this 1986 fantasy based very loosely on Steve Gerber's unusual addition to the world of Marvel superheroes. The film sees grouchy anthropomorphic bird Howard whisked across space from his duck-centric home world to our own planet, specifically Cleveland, thanks to an out-of-control laser experiment involving scientists Jeffrey Jones and Tim Robbins. Bewildered Howard immediately falls in with unlucky rock singer Beverly, played by Leah Thompson. But the same experiment that transported Howard also provides a bridge to Earth for the fearsome dark overlords of the universe. Can Howard and buddies stop this cosmic threat? And will the feathered misanthrope ever get back to home, Duckworld? Okay, so let's we'll split the blame on this, because I know you were, you were interested in covering this at some point, Phil. Um, I was less enthused, but... I was listening back to the first two shows we've done, um, and it came. It was coming across to me that it, it, some people might think we're just being too positive about anything. So I think it was quite important we had something that certainly I knew um, I'm not a fan of. I'd, I'd seen this twice already, believe it or not. Um, we were having a chat before we started here, and you you were young when this came out. You were under ten, and you were quite excited by it. Yeah, I, li- I, I like the poster that. that really intrigued me you know the egg with the bill and cigar sticking yeah. out and am i right in thinking that the typography was similar to indiana jones yeah it's got that same yeah lost art look. so you know it's it's finding an audience already uh but yeah i never got round to it and then you were just doing a, a slight disclaimer then about us being overly positive i try to find the positives in everything generally yeah. So that surely this couldn't have provided too much of a challenge for you. <laughs> this, this was a real challenge. Like. What's not to like? <laughs> oh, God, where to begin? Um, yeah, well, just before we do go on, um, I think this is very unlikely, but just in case there are any rabid Howard the Duck fans out there who troll the internet for any reviews of it. They probably are rabid if they're fans <laughs> of Howard the Duck. Yes. Um, <laughs> I did review this a few years back when some kind of new edition DVD came out. Um, my review was for Film 4's website, which since then has changed hands, so none of the reviews have bylines on. But yeah, if if for some reason anyone has read that and thinks that I'm just uh, ripping off the review from that, they're my own opinions. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I realize, I, I'm hoping there's no one out there who, um, who follows Howard's, Howard's critical history quite that closely, because... <laughs> This is bloody awful, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a notorious flop, but deservedly slow. Yeah, deservedly so. Yeah, it's not even. I don't think it's even close to the so bad it's good. No. It. I mean, I texted you the other night to say I've got an hour of Howard to go, and it. It's an hour and fifty minutes, pretty much. Yeah, Way it's nearly two hours. Yeah. Way too long. Yeah. Yeah, it was. A, it was a real, real struggle for me. Um, it felt long. It felt all over the place he's a duck is an alien duck dragged across space who ends up in Cleveland, Cleveland which I thought was I didn't even twig onto that until they said oh it's Cleveland I thought yeah. it was New York because you know everything's in New York oh yeah they're pretty interchangeable in these kind of films but you know the, there's so much potential for this character possibly or at least you'd have thought someone would have put some effort into it because mm. I mean we're both big comic fans um, although neither of us have read Howard the Duck no um 
I mean, I was quite intrigued after watching this because I, I did a little research. And I know Steve Gerber, who created it, really didn't like it. And I was thinking, if I was trying to tell somebody that The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was a brilliant comic and they went, oh, no, I've seen the film, it's rubbish, I'd be, like, incensed. And I'd want to... I almost felt, having watched this, I... I really felt I, you know, it got me intrigued about what the source material must have been because this, the film that we've got here is such a mess that it doesn't make you curious. It's like a trigonometry thing. <laughs> what, what the apex of this? I'm not really sure what I'm talking about now. If X times Y yes. <laughs> equals or Plato with the shadows on the cave wall. You think <laughs> if that's yeah, but what was the source of this? Because what? Yeah, it's what, just a mess. It, again, like you say, we ha- I haven't read the comics and I want to read the comics now to to see if if they bear any resemblance. I mean, I know they don't. No, but um, just what the original idea was, because there must have been something there that got George Lucas excited. And uh, Well, I'd read that he'd been reading them whilst he was making American Graffiti, and he said he gave them to um, Willard Hike, who directed it. Mm-hmm. But I think he was the writer on American Graffiti, and Gloria Katz, who was a producer. And he said, you know, picture him. like. Yeah. I've been reading this comic. Laughing it's, boy, George. It's really funny. <laughs> we should do this, and yeah, then it came to fruition somehow. But even the producers were like backing away, saying this should be a, a well, cartoon. This is it. It's a mess, but we're, I think animated. we're quite used to watching films which are disastrous, and it's because of something that's happened in um, in the editing. But it's clear that this the whole thing is 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 awful. It doesn't nail it at all. Is, is there any redeeming features? Can you? There are a couple, but you know, I might move on to those before I okay. thoroughly kick the <laughs> stamped on Howard's throat for kick, a little kick while. Kick the duck shit out of it. <laughs> yeah, the guano out of uh, Howard. It's um, foie gras. That's all it's good for. Seriously, like, well, this is the problem with the film. All you've got is very weak <laughs> puns based on ducks and you know, bird life. So you do get Howard practicing quack foo. He reads a magazine called Rolling Egg he doesn't want to sit around on his tail feathers all day and that's all he does you know At this it's point, funny you, when you deliver the lights oh well you know I've been working on my delivery but um, well no it came out in the 80s this was a time of whimsical fantasy kind of films after those initial glut of Star Wars ripoffs which I think we'll be covering a bit later on in this show um Things settle down to whimsical fantasy. You've got Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, Gremlins, those kind of films. Harry and the Hendersons. Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> but all of those understood that you can take the modern world and put this fantasy element in and it sort of t- twists everything around. But Howard doesn't really do that. It's called Howard the Duck. But what? He's short. What is he, three or four foot tall? Um, and he can make puns about being a bird. But he hasn't got any powers or abilities he doesn't transform anybody's life other than no he's, uh, he's not a particularly likeable character anyway which apparently is the point of the comics that he's a grouch and I think the comics were more of a social satire but like I said I've not read them so I can't really no no but within the context of the film like I said I couldn't re- not that I couldn't relate to him but he didn't have any I didn't have any sympathy for him or no. or the even many, for the people around the him the many times that people are trying to kill him <laughs> He's kind of. Wild. I want to see him cooked. Yeah, I, that very racist portrayal of the chef with the cleaver at the Cajun sushi bar. Uh, you know, sharpening the cleaver, trying to get. I think, God, please, please kill him because he's he's awful, and he's not even in a sympathetic way like Victor Meldrew or any of these other grouches are. You just think, you know. You wanted the uh, sushi chef to um, cleaver him, and yeah, I, f- I felt that quite a lot. But also with the other with Tim 
Tom Tim Tim Rob, Robbins. Tim Robbins was not Tom Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> He's glad to be gay, but he hates being in Howard. Yeah. He was so grating. I mean, this is a guy who won an Oscar. Went on to win an Oscar. Well, it's amazing because I was watching. Uh, hopefully, most people haven't watched this film. Um, but Tim Robbins in this plays kind of a goofy scientist who is he's kind of again the Hollywood version of the nerd. He's got the glasses and the sticky up hair, and but it's, it's Tim Robbins does put he puts a lot of energy into his performance. Um, so you know he hasn't just picked up the check, but all the way through you're watching this thinking in his mind is he thinking. I've got an idea for this film, Dead Man Walking. <laughs> um, Bob Roberts, I think I've got this great political satire that I need to make, and then get electrocuted and you know wake up or hanging off a microlight glider. Ultralight. Ultralight, that's even better. <laughs> yeah. But even the great Jeffrey Jones, even he annoyed me because you have this whole sequence where, without giving too much oh, away. Oh, you can't spoil <laughs> this film, can no, you? No, he, he becomes one of the dark overlords. Yeah, he becomes he, possessed by the spirit. Yeah, he's the host, isn't he? And, and is, he, he spends a good 20 minutes transforming very slowly with um, Leah Thompson and Howard by his side all the time. And he's just talking about what is what's undertake yeah. being undertaken obviously that's not Jeffrey Jones's fault though that's the script because I was watching that thinking the setup of this film is this duck's been zapped with a space laser they've gone to the space laser something's happened again and Jeffrey Jones's character gets up and is you know clearly something's wrong with him and when he's explaining that something's growing inside him and he's being possessed by an evil alien <laughs> entity the others are just treating this like oh yeah you've eaten some bad Mexican food or something <laughs> thinking you know uh, you, you, this is mostly played for last, but you do need to create some sense of peril mm. as well. And he's sort of, he, yeah, his character is kind of stationary. Well, he's driving. Well, he but, sits uh, there. For, well, they're, <laughs> then they're sitting at this Cajun sushi bar, which is the nearest <laughs> to anything like a joke in the film, mm. I suppose. And I was sitting there thinking, well, he's talking about how he's the evil over, no, dark overlord oh, of the universe. So I get it right. Um, but what does he do? He just sits there ranting a little bit. Waiting for his powers yeah, to uh, whereas, emerge. Yeah, the uh, transformation. Uh, will at which be point complete. he does transform, and he's this kind of. He looks yeah. a lot like John Carpenter, I think. Actually, <laughs> in this. But yeah, that brings us. You did ask. You know, what do I think the redeeming features are of this? Um, I thought the design of the Dark Overlords, once they appeared, was quite good. They're these kind of cartoonish scorpions, but I thought the design was pretty good on them. Yeah, I, certainly I, compared to Howard. I didn't mind. I think by that point we're talking like one one hour forty minutes into the film. It would have taken an absolute miracle for me to uh, get drawn into it. And when they did make their appearance, I wasn't I wasn't that enamoured with them. To too be honest, I thought late. they looked a bit dated, and it was stop motion. But well, again, I'd, I mean, I've got a lot Harry of time Hansen. for stop motion. Yeah, no, I, I have. That's what I mean. I'd rather I'd rather watch a master do it. You know, not industrial light and magic thinking they could do it well okay the other thing that a lot of people I've not I've not read many positive reviews of Howard at all but um, if any the other thing that is notable about this is John Barry who, who died recently did the soundtrack to it um, what did you think of that I didn't really notice the soundtrack right um, it, did. it seemed to just exist on another plane it's <laughs> 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 same I mean Thomas Dolby did a lot of stuff I'm quite familiar with his music and again it, I didn't really hear them apart from Beverly's band, Cherry Bomb. Yeah, that was clearly um, he'd done that at the yeah. end, and that sounds a lot like "Let's Go Crazy" by Prince, mm. doesn't it? I think it's got that little sort of. But yeah, I mean, John Barry's score sounds an awful lot like 
anything you'd know of him from um, more romantic James Bond things, which again, it's professional job of doing the score here, but it sounds very similar to things you'd have heard him do in James Bond or Out of Africa. It's kind of romantic and heroic, and you know, it doesn't fit in with the story of a, a, gr- a grumpy duck. No, no, it doesn't. I'd rather have heard, uh, you know, the duck call. <laughs> just, <laughs> just throughout. <laughs> throughout that. That would have been a lot funnier and more entertaining, I think. Oh, dear. So, um, well, so yeah. I, I did remember one thing, actually, liked, <laughs> which was there's a scene where Howard's um, playing some music in Beverly's flat and she owns a, a Roland 909 drum machine. Okay. I was really, like really happy to see something like that because <laughs> that, lift, that lifted it up for me yeah i mean the 909 is like it's uh in the electronic music world you know it's like mm. a hallowed machine so but the thing is when he actually played it it wasn't any 909 sounds no it was just when he just, he just did the riff of the thomas dolby song yeah it was like yeah. three notes or something oh. but Boom, boom, and then she comes and says, "Hey, you're not half bad, or something." Yeah, she came in with a nightgown and uh, knickers on. Yes, which just before the um, the scene that made me is this when we get sink into lower kind of, into my seat. Yeah, it gets into fairly clearly defined bestiality. Mm. I, don't, I don't think they consummate, but um, it's pretty it's, damn close. This is it. It's not like. In the Star Wars films, there's a suggestion that people now make the wisecrack about, oh, you know, Luke and Leia fancy each other in the first film and then their brother and sister. Yeah. But that's because Lucas had different plans entirely when they did that first film. But this, that's a very clear point they're trying to make in it, and they even make a joke of it later on when they're um, in the in the in the sushi bar. And that just that just defines the th- the whole film for me. It's it's attempting to do that really irreverent and anti-social kind of humour um, that you'd get more from, you'd, you'd be used to it in uh, Crumb Comics or Fritz the Cat uh, the, the, the Bakshi film of Fritz the Cat but it doesn't fit here at all does it? Cause no, it's totally out of place Everything else about this suggests it should have merchandise spin-offs and um, Coca-Cola tie-ins I was just always under the impression that it was a kids film and I think in the opening scene actually there's a a duck from Duck World and she's got her boobs out and yeah. she sees bathing. So in the first few minutes you've got that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, whoa. <laughs> We're going for an adult audience here. Mm. And then, yeah, then it leads on to the whole bestiality. Because, yeah, I mean, there are precedents for this kind of thing. Like, say, there's the Ralph Bakshi cartoons that you and I have watched recently. And yeah. Heavy Metal magazine had this sort of um, a cartoon anthology. But again, right the way through that, it's made very clear that their intention is to make something for kind of stoners or these kind of slightly offbeat kind of people. It's not aimed at a mass audience popcorn type of thing. Yeah. It's not made for a mass audience down your multiplex. It's always intended to go for a kind of yeah, it's, hip it's, crowd. It's the, it's the absolute definition of misjudge this entire film you know from from beginning to end all the structure the characters i mean we were talking about the actors before and yeah i think leah thompson again puts in a she she's clearly not trying to do sloppy work here she's really putting a lot more effort than the script deserves i read she you know spent two hours in makeup every morning getting her hair done just for her hair bloody hell 
unbelievable. That <laughs> just, they must have had a vat of uh, hairspray on there. Although it wasn't originally to be Leah Thompson, was it? Oh no, um, Tori Amos actually was uh, up for. I think Tori Amos and the John Cusack wanted to do the <laughs> voice. No, <laughs> I'm not. Say, I thought you were going to say John Gielgud. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to have. <laughs> it is Prospero. <laughs> Prospero's books. Prospero the Duck. Howard's books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, John Cusack was up to do the voice for Howard, and then it fell to what's he called? Chip Chip Zeal or Chip Zal or someone who I've never out. heard of who was a Broadway actor, I think. And they they wanted him because of his gravelly content of his voice. Yeah, that's what you want in a kids' movie. Well, I haven't said that. ET was gravelly, wasn't he? God, oh man, uh, do we have to talk any more about this? <laughs> no, I mean the one thing I want to say is we. The, the aim of this show is to cover slightly more offbeat films, but this is the first film we've reviewed so far when I actually felt we cover a lot of low budget things, but this you were aware of how much money had been sunk into it. With no, it wasn't like it was a big project that could have gone either way, it was something that was clearly badly prepared and just it was evil. <laughs> Definitely, it was foul. <sighs> Let's just face it it's fate. No, it's not. I've got a headache. And I got the aspirin. Be gentle. Just one good night kiss, sweet ducky. So, Static. Director Mark Romanek and actor Keith Gordon teamed up to write the script for this offbeat movie released in 1986. Amanda Plummer is musician Julia, first seen walking out on her band mid-gig. Returning to her Arizonian roots, she renews her friendship with eccentric outsider Ernie Blick, played by Gordon, recently fired from his job at a factory moulding plastic crucifixes. Undeterred, Ernie has gripped the town's interest with the imminent unveiling of a mysterious invention he's been working on in isolation, one which he promises will change everything. Get right with God. Let Jesus into your hearts. And you can be a winner in World War Three. Okay, Phil. So first, an apology to you, because I remember mentioning this film to you um, on New Year's Day this year when we were having a drink. That's and, right. Uh, I was oh, yeah, it's this really great film. Uh, you know, describing the main character collecting all of these kind of malformed crucifixes that he makes at this uh, on, the, on this conveyor belt. But I also told you exactly what the premise of the film was, and it Fucker. wasn't till um, because I got to say when I, when this came out in 1986, I remember the video coming out and the cover of it, and the little you know you used to get those little magazines in video stores which would promote all the yeah movies, you know, and they described this and everything else I know about it is um, yeah everything I see about this tells you exactly what the premise of the film is, um, and yet there's a great mystery here because Keith Gordon's character Ernie is building this machine that he claims is going to make everybody happy it's going to change everything and that's not actually revealed in the film till about halfway through so I'm not intending to reveal anything about what that invention is No I don't think we should I yeah. think if you're lucky enough to hunt this down um, it's a very good film to watch totally cold, well yeah. not as cold as can be mm -hmm. But obviously, we've got to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, there's a little clue in the film's title, but the specifics. But also, um, once this invention is revealed, the film swings off in the last half hour in a different direction, which uh, I think we'll maybe allude to, but I don't want to cover in too much detail. 
No, no. I mean, it's it's probably less seen than say the ninth configuration, yeah. which we ended up covering about in a like a bonus Easter egg. Yeah. But we're not going to do that no, this no, no. time. Let's just convey what's well. I don't know what you think of this film. What did you think of it in the end? Absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, I saw it. I watched this before Howard the Duck. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even though weirdly one leads into the other, don't yeah, it? Yeah. Because Howard ends with this sort of big triumphant gig with Leah Thompson's band, and this starts with uh, Amanda Plummer on stage with her keyboard. That's right. Yeah. Looking a bit um, lost. It's only recently that I've um, noted who Mark Romanek was because of Never Let Me Go, the mm-hmm. adaptation which I saw, which led me on to go back and watch One Hour Photo as well. I mean, the guy's only made three feature films since nineteen eighty-six. He's been a very successful pop promo. That's right, director. yeah. But he's got a he's got quite a distinct visual style. Is quoted as saying that he's a big Kubrick fan, and I think that comes across for me anyway. I didn't knowing. Yeah, I didn't that. see that in this film, and no? I've not seen the other two. I've not seen One Hour. No, I, okay. no, I have seen One Hour Photo, but a long time ago. I think there's yeah there's I think once you start watching, you see them all this With sort that of in that context. Stencil. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really loved this. Um, it was quirky in all the right way, and it sort of typified that period of the eighties. That was indie films were coming. You know, like Alex Cox was done had done Repo Man, and well, he'd yeah, done that. You got those independent films before. which seem to have an awful lot of. They sort of dovetailed with music quite a lot. They seem to be people who come out even if they weren't video promo directors. Um, their sensibility was with punk or new wave and a lot of that sort of bled through into the, the films they made. I mean, when I was writing notes for this, I was saying it's a there's something very new wave about the whole film. It's not just that Amanda Plummer's band are kind of... I'm not sure if they are new wave, they just... Well, I think they would be. But there's a scene very early on there where Amanda Plummer drives off and she's got um, This Is The Day by... Uh, the but I was watching it and just really enjoying the music, but thinking... He must have filmed that knowing that was the bit of music he was going to put on because it's a scene that goes on for a couple of minutes, isn't it? Of just her driving and trying to get a map out. That's and right. you can't imagine someone filming that without thinking, that's those are the visuals which will accompany this piece of music I really want to use in it. Now, um, the first time I saw this, it was on TV in 1989, I think, when Channel 4 did a season of science fiction films. And it was things like Dune, um, I'm trying to remember what else, Dune 2010. Um, Zardoz was certainly on in there. I think Fahrenheit 451 um, and a Russian movie called The Sex Mission (laughs) I seem to recall but this was in there and I think at the time I thought yeah it's kind of science fiction but it it isn't really it's one of those films which well I I mentioned Repo Man earlier you know it's that kind of that definitely has science fiction elements in it though doesn't it Repo Man whereas this like I say we're not going to discuss the invention but I think even if we did it would be hard to say that was I suppose, but I, I think you could. That sometimes science fiction can be used, you know, like how, say, Michael Haneke films aren't horror films, but they okay. they generate a sense of horror. Mm. I think there's, you can allude to this film as being sci-fi because, well, yeah. you know, it's got an invention, but there, there's a sort of detached sensibility about it. Yeah, I suppose, but I mean, I suppose having started to talk about this, I don't really want to get into one of those definition things, because I get very annoyed if people argue about whether The Wicker Man counts as a horror film, it's a pointless thing, and defining science fiction is a bit of a losing game as well. But it's just, it's. I suppose it's going back to that thing that things need to be pigeonholed, and this kind of got, I'm not sure marketed's even the word, but... uh, 
actually I don't know if you searched around the internet and seen this but I remember this like I say when it came out you had this little freebie video magazine is it the one with the the children yeah yeah it's got the two kids in the kind of rubber lizard lizard masks and so yeah when I saw that cover I thought wow this is going to be a really (laughs) because I don't look like masks there they look characters yeah Mm -hmm. but yeah again we're not really talking about the film here um it's I mean something I think you're you say it's got Kubrick kind of qualities to it and You've been apologetic about this, but you've said to me, uh, David Lynch, which I know everyone does say that if there's anything such a cliche on the ball, (laughs) but something that I thought you raised, which was very interesting, is it's it does have those David Lynch qualities, but before he was really known for them. Yeah, totally. I mean, so it was released in '86, so they made this in '85. So by '85, Lynch had done Eraserhead, Dune, and he'd be working on Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet possibly had come out, but certainly not enough time that it would have it would have influenced anyone or even have made any impact on yeah so what you've got here though you've got characters who or tropes like lynchian tropes to be all fucking wanky (laughs) (laughs) Um, you've got oddball characters who seem to be apart from what's going on you've got his Ernie's cousin Frank played by Bob um, Gunton is it Bob Gunton from Shawshank Shawshank Demolition Man yeah Yeah. I know more for there's the governor in the, the prison governor in Shawshank fantastic isn't yeah it? I mean he's a loopy this real hell and fire and brimstone survivalist but with a lot of heart to him as well yeah <laughs> I mean he's like something out of that John Ronson series yeah um, uh, crazy rules of the world yeah with his Vietnamese wife and their two children <laughs> two north kids. and south <laughs> superb I mean that in it's that's very lynching yeah. already and then you've got the whole diner there's a lot of scenes in a diner which yeah it's got a celebration of small town America and in fairness that comes out of other things as well Actually, the film this sort of reminded me of when I was watching it this time was, I'm not sure if you like Talking Heads music at all, but David Byrne from Talking Heads did a movie called True Stories, which had a very similar feel to this. The big difference being in that David Byrne's a narrator and he's directly addressing the audience, so he can play a bit faster and loose, whereas this did have to have a uh, structure to it. Mm. But it reminded me very much of that. It was that kind of yeah, uh, not, a similar not, quality I've not to seen it. True Stories. All right, well, maybe yeah. we should look at that at some point. But. That should be good. Yeah. So it's not really science fiction. It also sometimes gets marketed as a comedy. Um, there are, yeah, we've just laughed at the names of the kids in it, but <laughs> it's really melancholy. I don't, there are, yeah, it's just got a slightly, yeah, a dislocated feel to it. And it's odd in that sense, but it's not laugh out loud funny that often, is it? Yeah, but it, it does remind me, it has that sort of, not teenage angst quality, but that... Um, well I said detachment before but you know isolation that sense of isolation and uh, the absurdity of their situations yeah because it's never really explained why Amanda Plummer's character goes back home or even where she is at the beginning I don't know if she's meant to be a success in the big city when she's with this group or whether that's just some little club night somewhere but she comes back Keith Gordon's character Ernie seems like you know the townsfolk seem to really quite like him don't they but there's also a sense that he was someone creative when everyone when they knew each other at school who didn't really live up to his promise or deliver on it um so yeah i can see what you're saying if you're a teenager or you're anyone who feels a little bit marginalized this is going to be a familiar it's going to conjure up familiar kind of uh, emotions in you we mentioned amongst ourselves before about donnie darko and mm. i think it achieves with a lot more skill and subtlety what Donnie Darko was trying to achieve. Yeah, trying yeah. too hard to achieve. Yeah, yeah. But again, we've probably lost a lot different. of listeners now. That 
I like Southland Tales though, and the box. Oh well, got to get so. round to that at some point. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just mentioned Amanda Plummer coming home. Did you find that weird? Because what's I probably do watch films with a bit of an eye to how they've been written and why they've been written that way, and I wasn't too sure why. I think it seemed what to me her character served. Yeah, what purpose she served? To go into explaining the plot a little mm. bit, Ernie's parents have died, um, so you this becomes known after about half an hour or so, yeah. doesn't it? So you've got this character who is experiencing loss, and I mm. think Plummer's character is experiencing loss for where she grew up. Yeah, and I but think also she's yeah, trying to say she walks out at the beginning, but that's never explained. I think we're 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 the audience is credited with enough intelligence that they just know she's thinking this isn't fulfilling me I can't be dealing with this anymore exactly yeah and we're bad you know most people it's a natural instinct to mm. go home and sort of see or just go back and get your marshal yourself yeah exactly that's yeah having said I wasn't sure at the point the character served I think it, it actually makes sense now like you say Ernie's parents are dead everyone in the town is excited about this invention he's come up with and I suppose you do need a new an outsider to go in and have that explained to them on behalf of the audience but it's very skillfully done but it's just odd that like I say every other film you'd have seen would have explained what her problem was at the beginning and at the end which we don't want to spoil she's kind of one of the last characters we see in it and it almost seems like this was a whole adventure for her rather than I mean Ern is the main character in it and yet the way they bookend it with Amanda Plummer's character Julia is Mm. almost as if this was some little incident that happened to her I didn't really think of it in that terms Um, I just tended to go with it and accept whatever was happening because I think all the characters were sort of they were so separate from each other in in a way um, even though they came across as a tightly knit community Mm. who all knew each other um, you had Ernie with his secrets. You had Frank, who was marginalised for being who he was. You had. I love the way the local police couldn't stand him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah especially the first... younger deputy. Yeah, yeah. That was fantastic. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, you know, bumbling cops. That's a Twin Peaks theme, you yeah. know, coming through again. Yes. Like I say, we're not going to we're not going to talk about what Ernie's invention is. But when that revelation happened, uh, yeah, like I say, apologies because I told you what it was. I'm not sure if you remembered, but did it? Um, did that moment work for you? Or yeah, um, I'd kind of forgotten. I knew he was hmm. doing something. Yeah, um, which had had a a slight memory of what it was but when it actually came to fruition I was like oh right I had much the same reaction I think as the townspeople right. so I was quite lucky in a way you know I, yeah. didn't, I, I the thing that had stuck in my mind was the crucifixes yeah because he put them on his wall in a particular pattern which All reminded these great me crucifixes of, where you have kind of sometimes double Jesuses next to each other like Siamese Jesuses if that's the plural <laughs> Jesai Jesai <laughs> ones that are curled into fetal positions yeah. ones that are just like paint like polio victims kind of because uh, it's a great shot when you see them coming on the conveyor belt the, yeah. the lighting is superb where you've got the the crucifix and then the shadow cast to the mm. right hand side and that was like really um, it really blew me away I mean the lighting you know the technical aspects of the film were quite impressive I mean it's a VHS copy that we're watching but yeah which still I, yeah this, this is the first time on midnight video we were actually watching from VHS yeah it is so far although I watch the humanoid on VHS as well that's it you're sort of you're impressed with the technical side of it do you think the characters and the performances work yeah for how it was again you know I keep saying detached it's like you're offbeat and tangents <laughs> um 
yeah because there was that detachment that each character was in inhabiting their own little microcosm within the whole story I think it yeah I think they because bearing that in mind I mean it's it's a f pretty short film it's an hour and a half mm. but given that all these characters do seem to exist in isolation does the does the effect of the whole film is it satisfying or does it more feel like a bit of a collage or scrapbook because like I, I don't want to explain the last half hour but for me the first hour this time was great I really I enjoyed it much more than the previous times I'd seen it. The last half hour dragged an awful lot for me. I think it felt it, like it, the film was at a loss to know what to do after this invention yeah. had been unveiled. And on the technical side of it, I don't know if you noticed that there was hardly any incidental music in the last half hour, which is well known for just really slowing down the pace of anything. Um, yeah, the change is quite significant, I think, from the unveiling of the mm -hmm. machine. And it seems to start veering slightly more towards the overtly absurd, um, which creates a bit of a contrast, but it didn't overly bother me. I mean, right. first viewing, so mm. I took it all in and uh, absorbed it yes. quite happily. So you were never bored at any point? In no, no, no. Right. I don't think I would be again, actually. I really, yeah. Yeah. You are intending to watch this again soon? Mm. or Probably, yeah. 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 I'll try and get my wife to watch it. I think she'd like it. Okay, so you've seen all of uh, Roman X films. Um, yeah. Would you be keen for him to be a bit more prolific? Or definitely, uh, I think I was quite surprised by Never Let Me Go because it was the screenplay was by Alex Garland, who right. did Twenty Eight Days Later, who wrote the beach the, and stuff. Is it the Ishiguru? Ishiguru. Yeah. Uh, whereas this and One Hour Photo were written by well, this was co-written with mm. Keith Gordon, but One Hour Photo was. So I thought he was a bit of an auteur and. Yeah he went into this adaptation but it's a great adaptation don't get me okay. wrong um, I'd like to see him I'd like him to be more prolific I think he's got a, a really good eye and Keith Gordon who I've got to say I wasn't that familiar with even though a lot of the films that you um, you told me he was in I've seen all of them Christine All That Jazz I really love and Jaws 2 mm. I certainly don't love but you you said he's 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 lost his boyish good looks now. Yeah, I mean, uh, just like us. Just go on, yeah, not speak for yourself. <laughs> go on IMDb and check out his uh, photo. There. You said he looked like Fagin. It does look like Fagin. Have you not seen those like pictures of Omar Jalili on the uh, All right. on the underground because he was playing Fagin recently yeah. all over the West End musical. It's a bit like that. <laughs> the ravages of time. So yeah, so really well worth tracking down although you are going to have difficulties because is there an official DVD of this? No there's no we, official there's, to... you can get the it's basically a, a knockoff from the VHS scan and pan I think mm. onto DVD Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you read not that we're condoning that no but you know, you know if you're a film lover you'll seek it down regardless yeah. and hopefully that will encourage people to release it properly what do you think you got anything in there I don't think he has I do Ray, I'll bet you ten dollars I know that Ernie for a long time I'll bet you he's got something up there like a new laser weapon or you something I think so huh? okay. I, I think bet you do the one that he has okay, I think okay he'll... you're on you're on right. let's, let's have him hold the money right. there the money. you go there's ten dollars right. 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 trust him with the money I, think I trust him with the money I think he's got something Okay, well, there's still some debate on whether static counts as science fiction or not. Not that it really matters, but uh, that's something that definitely is science fiction. Uh, where in the far, far future, Bond girls and Bond villains clash against sinister scientists and megalomaniacs, and it's not Moonraker. Oh no! Well, you're one of the strangest pupils I've ever been sent. I don't know anything about you. Even your name is mysterious, Lokan Dharma. Lokaniwa Dharma. You see? What a name. I can't even pronounce it. Oh, 
It means ocean of wisdom, but I like Tam Tam too. Okay, so the humanoid, if you loved Richard Keel as the towering henchman Jaws in Roger Moore's James Bond films, here he is as the headlining star of an Italian-produced sci-fi knockoff where Big Dick gets to show off his acting chops for at least some of his screen time. A serene future version of Earth faces its darkest hour when sinister Lord Graal, his ambitious bride, Lady Agatha, and mad scientist Dr. Craspin join forces to take revenge on Earth's leader, the Great Brother, and an officious technician named Barbara Gibson, who was responsible for Craspin's incarceration on something called a mental control satellite. The villain's plan to create an invincible army of mindless superhumans, with their unwilling test subject being a previously gentle giant, Golob, who is transformed into the instrument of their vengeance. With the situation looking grim, will Earth Trooper Nick and the enigmatic preteen mystic Tom Tom find a way to stop Golob's lumbering menace, save Barbara, and halt the villain's scheme? Okay, I'd never seen this before until about six or seven months ago. I watched it because you talked about it, and it was on, I think it was on Sci-Fi, S-Y-F-Y channel, and I fell asleep halfway through, oh. I'm sad to say. But I was absolutely I hope that was exhausted. for ex- exterior reasons. It was, it was. It was little Zeb playing up again. Uh, he'd thrown a car at your nuts. <laughs> no, yeah. God knows what he'd thrown at my nuts that day. <laughs> uh, so I was sort of looking forward to it with slight trepidation because I hadn't seen the end and I was tired watching it. And, but anyway, I, it was brilliant. I absolutely, Especially after seeing Star Crash at Cigarettes Burns not long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Another Italian... Yeah, sci-fi, uh, well, Star Wars rip-off. <laughs> it's just great. It's hugely enjoyable, and I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it because um, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure if I was the best person to review this. A lot of <laughs> listeners probably wonder that anyway. But because um, <laughs> no, I first watched this, me and a mate rented it out the video store when we were about 13, thinking it looked genuinely good. That's the age I think this may be just me, but I think there's a tendency for teenagers to think they're very clever to sneer at things which are. <laughs> rubbish it's just a stage you go through and then yeah it, it, it was on um, it was on TV a few times in the mid 80s and we had it videoed off TV and it became kind of a big in joke between three of us in particular we watched it all the time and we were going about how terrible it was and I feel a bit bad about that because yeah I mean certainly harking back to Howard the Duck this is much better isn't it I mean it is let's not make any mistake this is cheap and cheerful filmmaking but it was not intended to be any great epic is it it's meant to be bread and butter kind of yeah i mean it's like they had probably the budget of two blake seven episodes possibly maybe more one. than that but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's well it's not far off i mean it's pretty well, no, it kind of hokey have, i'm sure at that point people like richard keel and th- there's two james bond girls in it uh corinne clary um, oh. who's also known for <laughs> oh the story of O, and barbara yeah, back that. who um who, who was the main Bond girl in uh, The Spy Love Me, and this was just before she'd met Ringo. Uh, she's now Ringo's wife, still Ringo's That's wife. That's right. Which has always amused me, because I imagine he's had to watch this film. No, I mean, now watching it, you know, watching it the other day for the first time in a few years, I, I really enjoyed it, and I did think, this is nice, cheap filmmaking. And to sneer at, you know, how poorly written it is, that's my problem, because, or it's my problem as a teenager. It, it, you know, I can say this wasn't meant to be any. This was meant to be something that was churned out in a few months, if that, probably a few weeks, and just cash in on the Star Wars tide. But yeah, it's hugely fun. It does what it's set out to do, and um, yeah, it's a rollicking space adventure. 
It really is, though. I mean, it's it's incredible that they can watch something with so such low production values and be thoroughly entertained. Mm. I mean, a sci-fi swashbuckling. Well, I don't know. Low production values. Obviously, it doesn't hold up to Star Wars, even though that's clearly visually what it's trying to be. Mm. I mean, I do think the plot's very different to Star Wars. But yeah, the opening still has the the villain ship looks almost exactly like the Star Destroyer. It's got that yeah. pizza slice kind of shape to it. They even have it going over the camera although they've kind of missed the point of why that was done in the original Star Wars yes. film. Um, and yet the villain has the kind of samurai helmet. Lord Grah is very much the Darth Vader kind of design. Um, and I really loved the uh, costumes of the well, the baddies, basically. Well, the stormtrooper kind of. Yeah, because the, but there was like a number of... Can. Well, there was some with that sort of watering can thing and yeah. the gas mask, and then there was others who had like extremely high collars almost up to their eyes. Oh, right, right. This wasn't There's just his... his Stormtroopers, no, and all no. the technicians there, because the ones, the ones with the collars up to their eyes. Yeah, yeah there was the weird uh, kind of like S and M sort of thing going on, almost. Yeah. I thought, or this, like this is where the Cenobites came from in Hellraiser. Well, yeah, I had that in mind because we've been talking about Hellraiser amongst ourselves recently, and also like the Sardica in um, David Lynch's Dune. Again, yeah. I'm hogging back to bloody Lynch in a different way. <laughs> in a different way, but yeah, had that. So there was a good aesthetic there, yeah. and also the the buildings, the sets outside were. Very very peculiar. These, they were, I mean, I, I imagine those were pre-existing buildings. They're probably kind of. They were, and they're part of the studios. Apparently, mm. it's the studios in. Oh, you've managed to in, find some info out about. Them, yeah, in Lazio, right. in Rome, yeah. where umpteen movies. I mean, I think mm. Gangs of New York. Oh, part right. of that was filmed there. Okay. Uh, um, but yeah, I'm wondering what other film they could have been from because there's no way they built those. No, for no I thought it was. Because it does look a bit like a one of those seventies futurist designs, but I was thinking mm. this is filmed out in the middle of nowhere. It's not like it could have been a shopping centre or something. No, I, I thought of like a Daniel Lieberskin, the mm. architect who did like the the Jewish Museum in Berlin and mm. the Lowry up in Manchester. It has that concrete thing going yeah, on. It was kind of bulbous. And yeah, yeah, it was very peculiar, fascinating. But one of the many nods to Star Wars in it is Tom Tom. This um, little mystical um, Asian child who I think his name is Lakani Wawa Daran. You think? As you consult <laughs> well, your moleskin. That's what he says. He says to Barbara Gibson. Barbara Gibson. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure if we're conveying the plot of this uh, particularly, but yeah. Um, well, we did in the introduction. Visually, yeah, the designs so much like Star Wars, and for obvious reasons. Another elements there are um, Keel's. Richard Keel's character of Golob has this um, little robot dog called Kip, which is a very irritating character. The other Star Wars ripoff uh, is the mysticism element of it, which kind of is one of the things that really made Star Wars work, I think, was the Force. And in this, it does seem like they've crowbarred in this little Asian kid who just talks in riddles and has this funny little bit of music playing. And just, yeah, talks in... I'm not even going to call them Zen riddles. He just has these uh, strange little pronouncements he makes. Yeah, he just and gets followed around by men with neon bows and arrows. Yeah, I really like those, yeah. like the glass bows and they the did look pretty ne- good, didn't they? Yeah, because they're not explained at all. They've got there's an air of mystery. Although I'm not sure that was a deliberate no, part, the part of the writer. I'm it was just, sure yeah, it just wasn't. put them in. <laughs> so Richard Keel, not famed for his acting talents, very quickly reverts to this. Um, well, familiar performance as a big lumbering seven foot tall guy. I think I was so <laughs> taken with his humanoid performance, especially his transformation. Yeah, which is yeah. which is basically him going shaking his arms about in the water, going ah ah in in slow motion. 
Yeah, but he sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, when Arnie goes like, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, Keel's never going to win any Oscars, but you do get these other actors in it, like Arthur Kennedy, who's had a big career, I'm afraid, behind him at this point. Um, although you thought Donald Pleasance would be better as this sort of mad scientist. He was it? originally slated to be Oh, really? To be oh, I thought that was just some idea you came up with. No, 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 he was, he was down to be Crosspin, but he had to back out. He, I think he had to do another film. I found Arthur Kennedy a little... I didn't find him edgy enough or unnerving enough to be an evil scientist. He, did, he does a good cackle and hand clasp, though. Mm, yeah, it wasn't too... But I, I could just prefer... Pleasant's would have added something yeah. to it, though. Um, a wonky and eye. And the, uh, the other actors in it, Barbara Back, who just come off of uh, Spoiler for Me, not a great performance. No bland, a bit bland. With an incredible hair. But she, yeah, but she was pretty crap in spite of Love Me as well. Yeah, she's I'm, vacuous. A, I'm afraid so. <laughs> but the main, the, the main, the female lead in this is Corinne Clary, is uh, peculiarly named Barbara Gibson. It's not the most space-age name you could come up with. <laughs> it's just so jarring, isn't it? sounds like someone it? who Simon Bates would read out that <laughs> tune on a Friday morning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when I incarcerated, mad scientist Craspin. Yes. Um, thing to note with this is yeah it's it's kind of a kids adventure movie but it does kids well this is it i know um actually like i said i was watching this on a vhs copy that i bought um about 10 years ago from a sort of secondhand store i'd seen it many times before and the thing i noticed with it is i think there had been a few edits in it because there is this scene quite early on um just to explain barbara back's character and you've seen this done in many other films is um a bit of a Dorian Gray figure. She's being kept eternally youthful by this, uh, by basically, <laughs> she, she's getting some formula which is extracted from other people, their life essence. It's their life, well, it's yeah. their blood, but yeah. yeah. Um, but this is demonstrated early on with this machine which basically a girl's stripped naked and put in and sort of needles are plunged towards her. It's like and a, a, a Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden kind of isn't thing. it? Yeah. Um, but I remember when we first watched this thinking, oof, you know, because you just weren't expecting naked breasts in a in a film that was such a such a daft that must adventure. have been amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think that was really trimmed down in the the version I've just watched. But yours was, yeah, I, I saw you got it. The full Monty. It was full on. Yeah, yeah. because because I was I would it, I also thought um, unlike in say Star Wars where you have certainly until I was about ten or eleven years old, I always thought the stormtroopers were just robots. Because they're masked and you never see and they them. Speak that intercom kind exactly, of thing, yeah. but in this you have like a real massacre at the beginning. Yeah. Where Grohl's um, troops, troops come down and they just like butcher everyone well, well, with lasers. Away. Yeah, and I, I was like, wow, I can't imagine. I suppose nowadays you got the twelve A certificate and you can get around that, but that and the boobs, you know, I thought it was quite full on. Um, I mean, something I have to get across earlier. It looks like Star Wars. The plot's really nothing to do with it, though, is it? No, 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 no. In fact, I could almost imagine this was a script that was lying around for a fantasy movie, and they just thought they'd put it in Star Wars drag. Because, yeah, I don't think this is spoiling anything, um, Keel's character, Gollop, is transformed into the humanoid, but then um, becomes... Well, the mystical character, Tom Tom, manages to sort of remove him from nefarious villain's control, and he becomes this... The quote is a big, kind, gentle person... <laughs> Um, that when I watched this, I actually, uh, this time round, I actually found there was something quite nice about that story of 
what's meant to be an evil, mindless character somehow getting his innocence back and being able to redeem himself. Was I reading too much into I it? I think you've watched it a lot more than I have. <laughs> yeah, this is in the past, I've just thought it's hilarious watching Richard Keel lumber around and attempting to act, and especially when he then gets his humanity back, but he's still... It's difficult, to, it's difficult to find the right phrasing for this. Mm. He's still essentially this mindless oaf, but he's working for the forces of good now, and he seems... He's a bit like Lenin of My Some Men or something, isn't he? But yeah, this time around I found that quite touching in a, in a way. Yeah, no, I, I suppose Push Comes to Shove, I'd agree with that. The other thing that's kind of notable about this is Ennio Morricone does the soundtrack. Now, everyone loves Ennio. I used to find the soundtrack to this hilarious as a, as a teenager. How were you finding it, watching it for the first time in your... I really like it. Yeah, I think it's, it's great. I think there's... Uh, there's a definite sort of BBC radiophonic. Yeah, it's thing mostly. Going on. It's or mostly Raymond Scott. You know Raymond Not Scott. Not familiar with. He was famous in the fifties in America for creating music for adverts, but he built all his own. Um, Synths and yeah. well, oscillators and stuff. Yeah, not synths. Yeah, just like, uh, analog noise yeah. generators, basically. And he made like some CDs called Soothing Sounds for Babies, which yeah. is twenty-minute. Um, basically, it sounds like the Ennio Morricone soundtrack yeah. to this. But it's I like, do, like I say, I used to be very sort of sneering about this soundtrack. Now I really like it, and I'm not sure if that's nostalgia or whether I genuinely think yes. It's yeah, this is a good approach to doing music because I think it the, is the really theme music does take good. about five minutes to get going, doesn't it? So, yeah. uh, it's the beauty of it, certainly, mm. because it does start off so sparse and yeah. then it builds and builds and, and builds. eventually get kettle like, drums at a wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is like a really amazing musical yeah. score. <laughs> well, after listening to this, if you want to track down any of those films highly recommend Howard the Duck. Don't be foolish. Don't even joke about that. Don't be quackers. Oh, <laughs> you should have written the script. <laughs> what in Helios are you doing here? I was going your way, so I thought I would come along with you. Kid, you got to be out of your gravity zone. What do you do for an encore anyway? I suppose you can fly one of these ships. Of course. It's much easier than levitating. All I can say is you're one of the weirdest little kids I've ever met. Now, I want you to tell me how you managed to sneak into the space terminal. I just had a little talk with the guards, eye to eye. So, cheers uh, very much for listening again. If if you are listening again, if not, um, go Listen back again. and check the others, yeah. Yes. I think they're, uh, they've got some merits. <laughs> are we going to review our own podcasts? <laughs> um, and as always, we're really... Um, Desperate for feedback. Yeah. We don't like to go out to total silence. We don't want don't make us the Howard the Duck of podcasts. No. So yeah, anything short of death threats for now, but we might open the Oh no, that'd be fun. I'd quite like know, to read out a few death maybe. threats. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be dead just yeah. Okay, so yeah, if you if you'd like to get in touch with us, you know, please do and you can send emails to us at midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk or um I'm sorry, I don't understand Twitter. What's all this monarchy? <laughs> if, if you're uh, if you're on Twitter, look for us uh, at Midnight Video. Um, you can find me as well on Twitter. Is at the Furious. That's T H E P H U R I O U S. And if you're interested, I've got a blog as well called Christ Kid, You're a Weirdo. You sound like you're offering them a look at some puppies there. <laughs> They're my little puppies. Okay. I want to share my puppies. Not Corinne Clary's. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I have to stop mentioning that woman's name. I've got a wet patch. No, sorry, that's my puppy. <laughs> yeah, so Christ Kid, You're a Weirdo. That's all one word. Um, no apostroph apostrophes or anything. Dot com. 
No, no apostrophes.com would be a better name for it. Guts clarify. I'm going to do that again. It's cool. Yeah, I'll go. Yeah, type in Christ Kid, <laughs> you're a weirdo.com. Weirdo. Yeah, weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, well, yeah, you know, get back to us. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so, well, yeah, sorry for that lapse in professionalism there, but yeah, thank you very much for listening and um, join us again next time. Let's take it away, Mr. Music.